This is a closer look with Arthur Levitt. Arthur Levitt is a former chairman of the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, a Bloomberg LP board member, a senior advisor to the Promontory Financial Group, and a policy advisor to Goldman Sachs. Paula Dwyer spent much of her early journalism career at Business Week and the New York Times, writing about finance, economics, and politics. She was a Pulitzer Prize finalist in 2012 for her editorials on the European debt crisis. Paula was also the co-author of my book, Take on the Street, which, thanks to her, was named one of the 100 best books of 2002 by the New York Times. She's been with Bloomberg since 2011 as a member of the editorial board, and now she edits Bloomberg Quick Takes and Quick Takes Questions and Answers, explainers that accompany stories about market volatility and Bitcoin price swings, for example, to provide context that helps readers make sense of the news. She joins me now for a closer look. Paula, the economy is booming, tax cuts are low, unemployment is low, and even wages are rising. Why all of a sudden do you think the market that was remarkable for a lack of volatility suddenly dropped 1,600 points in one day and end its run of calm? Well, Arthur, I think the term perfect storm is a real shop-worn cliche, and I hate to use it, but there was a perfect storm. It started with the a Friday afternoon decline in the stock market that was based on what traders call fundamental issues. So that was the um, fear of inflation coming because we just got a really good jobs report showing that we are really very close, if not at full employment. And we all know when there's full employment that gives leverage to workers to demand higher wages, and indeed wages that day uh, show that they had risen 2.9% year on year. And um, so there was some fear that the era of cheap money being over with interest rates going up, uh, with more leverage by workers to demand wage increases, and full employment were all combining to result in lower corporate profits. And that kind of made sense, um, and it was driven by the jobs report that day. But then a new week dawns, and the trading turned to something that was much more technically driven. And by that, I mean looking at where charts uh, show equity prices, whether they're oversold or undersold, or looking at other um, indexes, one of which was the culprit of what happened in the stock markets for a full week, and that is this thing called the VIX. And the VIX is commonly known as the fear barometer. And um, when it goes up, that means that there's more volatility in the market, more wild price swings. When it goes down, it means that the market is calm. And the VIX had become a an index off of which traders would make bets. So I, I'm not going to say investments, because some of it was investments, but an awful lot of it was betting. 
uh, on which way the VIX would go. And a lot of the vet, the betting was shorting, in other words, selling the VIX down. And that really was what happened. Uh, you had some fundamental reasons combining with these technical reasons, but the technical reasons took over. And as soon as the VIX trades were being unwound, that required selling into a downturn. And so you had an acceleration, um, some call it a vicious feedback loop, an acceleration of the decline in the stock market. This short volatility has become really popular. So what happens to this kind of trading now? Well, it's still going on. It was a surprise to me, and I think to a lot of other people, including some of our regulators who didn't see this happening under their noses, that about $2 trillion in trading, uh, in investing, was being done off of the VIX. So some of it was, you can't, you can't trade the VIX directly. So there are these two dozen or so derivative products that were created to take advantage of where people thought the VIX would go. Um, and, you know, and sometimes it was to hedge a portfolio risk. Sometimes it was um, to do asset allocation. So legitimate reasons why you would want to track the VIX. But then it, be, it got out of hand. Um, and the inventor of the, of the VIX is um, a gentleman um, named Devesh Shah. He invented the fear barometer 15 years ago. And when the VIX was driving this wild trading and the, and the huge decline in the stock market, uh, some of the Bloomberg News reporters spoke to him, and he said that really all the VIX is supposed to do is, is tell you what the temperature is outside. If it's winter, it's going to be really low, and if it's summer, it's going to be really hot. It's not really meant to be the cold index or the heat index. It's just the temperature. And so... Um, he, they quoted him in this story saying, I don't know why these products exist. So he was warning that this kind of a thing could happen. Indeed, it did happen. And other people were, were quoted saying that traders are playing a game, not investing. And I, I do agree that, that some of that was going on. But uh, to answer your question, Arthur, it is still happening. And it is, it is uh, kind of an, an addiction to traders. They, they can't stop doing it because they've been having fun with it. Um, but, of course, um, their fun is hurting my 401k, everyone else's 401k. Paula, do you think that inflation or the end of cheap money is responsible for any of this volatility? We were in a bit of a Goldilocks era for the last several years because the Fed was making sure that there wasn't a lot of volatility in the markets. They were buying a lot of bonds still, and when they stopped buying bonds, they were still holding them on their balance sheet. Interest rates, therefore, stayed very low. Corporations were able to borrow at, at very low rates, and so their profits were high. And um, the budget deficit was coming down. Um, we now are reversing a lot of that. We're going into higher interest rates. Corporate borrowing will be more expensive, and so their profits will decline. And then you have the tax cut as well as higher federal spending combining to make the budget deficit really balloon. And then you have, of course, the economy is at full employment, and so you have to think about future wage gains, even though wage gains haven't, haven't been off the charts at all. 
um, they are starting to show up in the data. And so you combine all that, and yes, I think inflation is coming back. And of course, the Fed should be happy about this because they wanted inflation to come back, and it wouldn't come back for the longest time, but now we are starting to see it. And their worry is that the, the Fed will, will raise rates faster than they originally thought they had to, and that was also part of what made the markets react, this idea that the three rate increases that are kind of baked into the uh, stock prices and bond prices right now, that they might have to rethink all of that. I guess a bigger question in my mind was why the market was calm for so long. Well, I think it was a lot of what the central banks were doing throughout the world, Japan, Europe, and the U.S. They were doing you know, this, this really um, unusual type of uh, monetary policy we called quantitative easing. And even, even when they stopped doing quantitative easing, which is basically buying bonds and making sure that asset prices at least you know to to make sure that interest rates are are low and they stopped doing that and then they looked for inflation inflation didn't appear so they didn't sell those bonds um, now they're starting to see it appear and they're going to have to unwind their their balance sheets um, but I think a lot of other things were happening uh, we're going through a lot of disruption in the way that the uh, retail consumer buys things look at Amazon for example um, when you buy things online now your, your ability to, to shop and compare prices is, is so much better. And so the margins that, that producers are getting are much smaller because of people, companies like Amazon. Um, Amazon has taken a lot of the profit out of all sorts of companies. Um, a lot of things that are available to us, Facebook or Google, are free. You, know, they're, they're, you don't pay anything for those. And so inflation was quiescent for a long time for many of those reasons. It was the arrival of e-commerce. It was the actions of central banks. It was unemployment, which meant that uh, you were happy to have a job and you usually didn't um, agitate for pay raises or bonuses if you thought there might be a chance that you would lose your job. Um, because your employer could go and hire somebody else to replace you. So it was a lot of those things kept inflation quiet. And they're all coming undone all at once. Maybe not the digital disruption that we're seeing, but even then um, there's a lot of pushback on Amazon and Google and Facebook, and that could hurt their ability to disrupt the retail marketplace. People are still trying to understand digital currencies. So before we talk about Bitcoin, I'd ask you whether you consider it a currency. Well, it's an excellent question. I wish I knew the answer. Um, I think at first everyone thought it was a currency. It was being put out there as a way to bypass the official legal tender that, that countries were issuing, like the dollar. It was a way to bypass national governments. It was a way to do things that governments thought were crimes, like money laundering or drug trading or even Ponzi schemes. So uh, yeah, at first I thought it was a currency. But then um, as, as Bitcoin's popularity grew and other types of cryptocurrencies appeared, you could do things with it that made it more than a currency. Uh, for example, you could do an initial coin offering like an initial public offering of a stock. Um, and that made it a security. And that's when the SEC started to 
take a look. Or you could make it a, um, a trade on, a, on a, in the future direction of a, a cryptocurrency. Uh, and, and it started trading, for example, futures started trading on the Chicago Board Options Exchange. And so the CFTC had to get in the act because they regulate the CBO the Chicago Board Options Exchange. and uh, But as an, uh, something that you exchange as you transact business, as a means of exchange for buying and selling things, it's funny because Bitcoins aren't really used. A lot of places just won't accept them. A lot of banks, in the United States especially, have just said, absolutely not, we won't do business in cryptocurrencies. Cryptocurrency is something that exists on somebody else's computer. And so I just um, think it's going to be a while before you're going to see it used in everyday commerce. But boy, it has captured the imaginations of people all over the world. It's just amazing. Well, if the, the basic point is to bypass central banks and country borders, won't there always be underground exchanges for cryptocurrencies, no matter what the government does? Absolutely. Um, I think one of the best examples of that is South Korea. The South Koreans have gone bonkers for Bitcoin. The government at first said that they were banning it, and so it just went underground. And so then they finally said, well, okay, we'll allow it, but under our rules. Paula, people are still trying to understand digital currencies. So before asking whether Bitcoin is a currency, the government considers it a security for regulation. What does that mean? Well, it depends on what part of the government. So the Securities and Exchange Commission, which does oversee stocks and bonds, things that are issued and, and traded, they consider it a security only in the sense that you can have an initial coin offering, a public offering of where well, you would get a stake in an ICO, as, as it's referred to. The Commodity Futures Trading Commission, which is their sister agency that regulates commodities, so things like futures, basically an investment in where you think a the price of grain or the price of oil will go in the future, they consider it a commodity, but only because it is Bitcoin futures are trading on an exchange that the CFTC oversees. It's a little confusing, but it depends on the purpose underlying the investment. So the controller of the currency and the Fed might consider it a currency. And so you can have the same thing being considered different asset groups depending on how it's being used. Turning to politics, Paula, our budget director, Mulvaney, has asked for zero money for the next budget for the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. In your mind, does that suggest that this agency is dead? Well, I think there is a maybe an audience for the uh, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau to be dead. Some of the payday lenders, uh, even some of the big banks that saw that their hands were tied and what they can do and the types of communications that they could have with consumers and the types of fees that they could charge them, the types of warnings that they had to provide them. I think they all felt that this was unfair to their business model, and so they would love to see it die. The person who was named by Trump 
Mr. Mulvaney to oversee it more or less falls in with that crowd, but I don't think it's dead. I think it has a backing among the consumers of America at large. I think there are Democrats in the Senate, like Elizabeth Warren, who will do anything to protect it. By zeroing out its budget, that may not mean that it's being killed by the Trump administration because this, the CFPB had a surplus in its budget. It was uh, seen by Mr. Mulvaney as enough to get the agency by for the rest of the fiscal year, which runs out in September. And it, it may or may not be, but at least um, they, they, they can dip into that. It was his opinion that no federal agency should have a surplus. And so the surplus was, was built up through various um, fines and, you know, and because it gets its funding through the, the Federal Reserve, it's not in a, really in, a, in a, an appropriated budget. So they may be trying to cut back on it, but I think that's a battle that's going to be played out over the coming years and not one that's going to result in the agency dying this year. Paula, I just noted that the SEC has invited Scott Garrett, a former congressman from New Jersey, to become an advisor to the chairman. Garrett uh, has been a frequent critic of regulation and the SEC. It seems to me that that had to be a very demoralizing step to long-time staffers at the commission to see a, uh, a politician of, of his stripe becoming an advisor to the chairman of a, a supposedly non-political uh, independent agency. I guess so. Um, I'm not sure if that was more demoralizing than um, some of the things that the agency has embarked on recently, um, including um, a suggestion that maybe they should um, disallow shareholder lawsuits, which to me was um, a fairly earth-shattering development. Scott Garrett was supposed to become the head of the Export-Import Bank, and he, as a congressman, had said even more negative things about XM. He, he tried to kill it, and so he couldn't get confirmed by the Senate. And I guess this is what happens to someone who can't get confirmed, is that they become an advisor to the head of an agency. And uh, I don't know if it's a permanent um, position for him or just a, a placeholder, because he was seen as a loyal Trump supporter, a loyal conservative Republican, one of the members of the very conservative Freedom Caucus in the House, and so this is a place for him to, to go in the interim. It clearly was a political gesture and had to be disillusioning to long-term staffers. I think it's a very unfortunate move by the chairman. Paula, there is a plan to repeal Dodd-Frank in the House. What do you think is going to happen? Repeal or just some tweaks that might change? I'm generally of the opinion that when the House tries to outright repeal something, that they have the votes for it because the Republicans outnumber the Democrats and they only need, you know, a 50% plus one vote. Um, in the Senate, though, where the Democrats are, uh, you know, it's, it's a 49-51, 
Um, so it's much closer, and you need a lot more Democratic votes because of the uh, filibuster rules, so you need 60. So you always need a certain number of Democrats to pass something, and people know that, I think. But the, the point is that a repeal of Dodd-Frank would just die in the Senate. But if it was something more bipartisan that would um, do what even some Democrats say is take some of the rougher edges off of Dodd-Frank, make some changes that will help uh, small banks and community banks, and will make it appear less uh, heavy-handed in, in a regulatory sense, there is some support for doing that with some Democrats and even some very liberal Democrats, like Sherrod Brown of Ohio, who has agreed uh, in doing some of this um, deregulatory downsizing of Dodd-Frank. That's where I think it will end up. I, I'm not predicting. I don't really know. But I think that when they when they really start working on, on this, it was really put on a back burner last year and it will it could move forward this year um, that it, whatever the house does will be moderated by the need in the senate to have more democratic votes in quick takes you've explained the nafta negotiations which just wrapped up the sixth round with agreements to continue to talk what are the main sticking points well, there are, there are quite a few, and um, they've saved the really hard stuff for the end. I would say that um, one of the biggest areas is in autos. The U.S. wants to make sure that anyone who wants to take advantage of the, the zero tariffs under NAFTA, you have to comply with what, what we call rules of origin. In other words, a car right now has to have about 60% of its parts made in one of the three NAFTA countries, the U.S., Canada, or Mexico, in order to have those zero tariffs. The U.S. wants to raise that percentage, and it wants at least half of that car to be made in the United States. So it would then lock out imported parts or autos from Asia, especially China. And it would raise the price of a car, though. And that's not uh, a good thing for American consumers. So that's one of the issues, is um, raising the, these rules of origin. It is also a problem for, for Detroit manufacturers who have always wanted to keep out Asian imports. But they have these supply chains now that they've locked in. And to change their supply chains might mean that they have to scramble for new ones that may not be as good or, or may cost them even more than if they have to pay the tariffs. So they might end up paying the tariffs and, and not using NAFTA. A lot of products come into the U.S. that bypass NAFTA. They, are, they say it's just not even worth it to do all of the, the paperwork and comply with all of the rules. So that's, that's one issue. There are issues around how to settle disputes in that um, the Trump administration doesn't want to use what is called an international settlement of dispute system. They say that it's um, giving away our judicial system to bureaucratic, uncontrolled legal systems outside of the, the, the U.S.'s sovereignty. There are some Democrats who agree with him on that. That was an issue when the Trans-Pacific Partnership was being negotiated. 
There's another issue that um, has to do with wanting to, the U.S. wanting to sunset NAFTA after a certain amount of time. In other words, we'll agree to a new deal, but we want the deal to die in, uh, say, two years or three years. And then we all have to agree to renew it in order for it to continue to survive. And Canada and Mexico say no dice. Um, that's not, businesses don't make investment decisions on, on two or three year tracks like that. They make investment decisions that have to survive through decades. And so it will just mean less, un, less certainty and business-like certainty, as we all know. Paula, Quick Takes took a look at this year's flu. Why didn't the vaccine work for so many people? And do you think that future vaccines will ever get it right? I've seen statistics on this which really suggest that the vaccine was almost worthless. Well, I think it was about 30% effective. That's the, the statistic that we reported in our quick take on this subject, which is not great. It's usually more effective than that, but it happens to be less effective this year because of the particular strain of virus, this, this H3N2 strain, which has uh, shown itself to be very adaptable to the human gut, I suppose, in that it can live and replicate and mutate. And this one did all of that. And when the flu vaccines are, are made, they're, the virus is grown in chicken eggs and they have to do this about a year ahead of time. They have to try to identify what is going to be the killer flu a year ahead of time. But even when replicating inside the eggs, they're prone to undergoing these adaptive changes. And um, by the time they get the vaccine ready, the virus has mutated. So biology, it's really not human error, it's biology. As a journalist for more than three decades, Paula has written for Business Week, The New York Times, and Bloomberg View. She's a Pulitzer Prize finalist and co-author of my book, Take on the Street. She's now the editor of Bloomberg Quick Takes, which provide explainers that keep us all updated on the biggest news stories of the day. Paula Dwyer, thanks for joining us. By the way, if any of you have comments about the program or suggestions for topics, email me at a closer look at Bloomberg.net. That's a closer look, one word, at Bloomberg.net. And follow me on Twitter at Arthur Levitt, one word. This is a closer look with Arthur Levitt.